0: Hello and welcome to the IPSO podcast. We are IPSO, the independent press standards organisation, the independent regulator of the majority of the UK's newspaper and magazine industry. These podcasts are for anyone who's interested in newspapers, journalism, the media, how it's regulated and of course our work. My name is Vicky, and I'm your host. And today I'm joined by some members of our complaints team, John. Hi, John. Hi, Vicky. And Honey. Hi. Hello, welcome. So, today we are talking about something that people either love or hate. Um, and it's certainly something that we get a fair number of complaints about, and that is opinion pieces. So, John, what do we mean when we talk about opinion pieces?
1: So it's very simple, really just an article in a newspaper or a magazine um, that's really given the author's view about a particular subject. Um, quite often they're intended to be challenging or controversial, um, but really they can be about almost anything, fashion, sport, politics, whatever. Um, and obviously we all know there's there's lots of well known columnists with a, a big following and people, you know, buy publications particularly to to read that author's opinion. So People like Owen Jones in The Guardian, Richard Littlejohn, Rod Little and The, Little, Little, sorry, and the Spectator. Um, and then people like Boris Johnson or Anne Winsicombe who've had, you know, other jobs in the so past. Some kind you know. of
0: celebrity columnist. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
1: Um, but sometimes um, it's not even a particular columnist view. Sometimes when we talk about opinion piece, we're talking about um, maybe the opinion of the publication itself. So a, a leader article, an editorial, uh, the front page of the newspaper. Um Often that that front page, that front page headline is. It's really
0: where kind of publishers publications set their agenda for yeah. on certain topics.
1: Exactly.
0: Yeah, sure. yeah. Okay, so um, maybe this is a slightly odd question uh, for Holly. Um, what's the point of opinion pieces? I mean, why don't papers just report? And I'm sure people, some people, would quite like this. Uh, why don't papers just report kind of factual? balanced news, like why do we have to read about people's opinions? Mm.
2: Well people read newspapers not just for dry factual news they, leader articles and pieces by columnists provide readers with analysis and a broader perspective on what is actually happening in the world so they, they're not just telling you what the facts are, they're telling you a way of thinking about what is happening and they're there to provoke arguments mm. I mean you know? certainly
0: I know that like when I read opinion pieces sometimes even uh, a piece that I might not agree with, for example, the fact that I've read something that is kind of the opposite of my point of view sometimes helps me to kind of cement exactly what I think in a way.
2: Yeah, so it's there to challenge you and to encourage you to think critically about what is happening. So it's yeah, so um, rather than just giving you the boring facts, mm. um, it's it's encouraging you to to think more critically about it. I mean, I guess also they. And maybe some people won't think this. Uh,
0: in some ways, they can be entertaining. Like there are a lot of columnists yeah. who go out there to kind of say almost shocking things. And some exactly. people do you like
2: this kind exactly. of journalism. Some people do like to be sh- be shocked, to be made. You know that sometimes these journalists have, uh, say things in a funny way. I mean, really, by publishing comment pieces, newspapers simply enabling journalists to exercise their right to free speech. Um, and to, the idea of not being able to publish somebody's opinion seems to be a huge blow to everybody's right to freedom of expression.
0: Mm. And I mean that is obviously something that, as regulator, one of our roles is to obviously uphold that really kind of important right exactly. of freedom yeah. of
2: expression. I mean, I, I feel like you know if I have an idea or a view about something, it would be a terrible thing if I was prevented from writing it down and sharing it with other people. Mm. And that that is what newspapers are yeah, doing.
0: This is, I think, a kind of good time to move on to kind of the rules that cover opinion pieces. Because, of course, as you say, Holly, um, freedom of expression is really important. However, it does have to kind of operate within yeah. the bounds of some rules. So, Absolutely. obviously, there's the law, um, which we do not cover, so we are not going to talk about here. Um, but all newspapers and magazines that are members of Ipsi, um have to follow the editor's cage, which is the set of rules that newspapers have to follow. Say, we often get asked about how we regulate opinion pieces. And I guess the really simple answer is the same as all other editorial material in the newspaper. Um, I see quite a lot on social media, because I have the pleasure of managing Ipsay's um, Twitter, that people will say, oh, well, Ipsay won't uphold that complaint because it's about an opinion piece. Say, it's not covered. Is that true, John?
1: No, absolutely not. So every opinion piece still engages with the code. So, for instance, if an opinion piece includes a factual statement, then that absolutely has to be accurate. Um, Similarly, in writing an opinion piece, uh, a publication can't invade someone's privacy. It can't discriminate against an individual. Um, So all the clauses of the code still apply, but they may apply slightly differently, and we might have different expectations in relation to some of them. So just to quote exactly what the code says, it says... The press, while free to editorialise and campaign, must distinguish clearly between comment, conjecture and fact. So they need to distinguish what is comment, what is fact. And we look really carefully at how the different claims in an article are presented. So is it presented clearly as the author's opinion or is it being presented as a factual claim? If, if it's presented as a fact, that should be accurate. And that's a really key distinction for mm, us.
0: Absolutely. Um, and obviously it gates without saying, that we can't regulate people's opinions, I mean, even if sometimes we, we might quite like to. Um, and generally, just because I or John or Holly doesn't <laughs> agree with an opinion doesn't necessarily make it a breach of the code or there's breaking broken the law.
1: Exactly, and a lot of complaints that we reject, um, or rather we do reject a lot of the complaints that we receive about opinion pieces for very good reasons. Um, as you said earlier, Vicky, part of our role as, as a regulator is is really to uphold freedom of expression and the right of columnists or anyone to, to shock or entertain or challenge people and be satirical or poke fun at people, even be offensive. Um, so when someone complains about an article just because they disagree with it, our job is to say that just to disagree with something isn't enough. It doesn't make it inaccurate. It doesn't mean it shouldn't be published. Um a really good example of this recently um, was an article Amanda Plattel wrote about Stormzy. Um, you may remember at the Brit Awards last year, he kind of did a protest against Theresa May. Um, and then Amanda Plattel wrote an article in the Daily Mail in which she said that he should be grateful for um, what Britain had provided to him instead of protesting against Theresa May. Um, and a huge number of people complained to us because they disagreed with that. They they thought that Stormzy had no reason why he should be grateful to to Britain, um, but Amanda Patel was ultimately ultimately entitled to that opinion. Many people disagreed with her, but mm. it was good. I mean, to, I guess in it. the
0: same way that um, Stormzy is entitled to his opinion about Theresa May and is entitled to exercise his right to talk about that opinion. I mean, he, on a much larger kind of platform, I guess than many kind of ordinary members mm. of the public. Might have, Yeah,
1: right. So it's always kind of a challenge to make sure we get the balance right here between things which are common, things which are fact, and really looking carefully at how they're presented. Um, And we'll discuss some examples of that later on, I think. But, um, you know, we'll always take any complaint seriously which says there's a factual statement in an opinion piece which is wrong, or, for instance, says an opinion piece is intrusive or discriminatory or, or otherwise breaches the code. So people should feel confident complaining about opinion pieces, but they should just be aware that, as you said before, It's not the opinion we regulate, it's
0: the other parts of the article. Mm, Absolutely. Um, So I want to talk about a few more Ipso rulings that kind of cover opinion pieces. And this one is a hot off the press ruling. Exciting. Um, So it's Allardyce versus the Daily Telegraph. Um, So Holly, uh, for anybody that has read the ruling on this decision, which was published a couple of weeks ago... It's about 18,000 words. It's very long. It's very complicated. (laughs) It's a complaint about a telegraph undercover investigation into uh, Sam Allardyce, the former England manager's commercial relationships. Um, And what our complaints committee ruled was that um, that investigation, those articles were in the public interest and generally accurate. But they did uphold the complaint in part, um, particularly on kind of three points or articles um, which were all to do with the way that they reported opinions so tell us a little bit about this one
2: yeah so uh this one the newspaper published a lot of articles about mm. this because obviously this was their big um investigation into um football in britain and and one part of that included an investigation into sam allardyce which uh, which in, eventually led to him losing his job as england manager um so the the coverage included obviously, the big splash in September 2016, but also lots of other articles, including opinion pieces and leader articles. Um, He complained about 15 of the articles that were published. Um, He said that the subterfuge was not justified and that the coverage was really inaccurate. The committee found one significant inaccuracy in a news item. So that that one wasn't a a comment piece. Mm. um, But there were two other inaccuracies that they identified that were in comment pieces, one, was, one of these items was written by the newspaper's chief football um, writer the day after the story broke. And in it, the writer was expressing his opinion that Allardyce had to lose his job because of the comments he had made about third-party ownership and various other things, like other um, people in the footballing world. Um, but where... And he, this is an opinion he's entitled to, to express... It's his view that Dice should have lost his job. Others may completely d- d- disagree, yeah, yeah. Yeah, disagree and say that actually what the newspaper found him doing wasn't that bad, um, that he hadn't broken the rules, he didn't deserve to lose his job, also a, a fair position to take. Um, but where the committee found that the article had gone wrong in terms of the, to- but in terms of the code was a factual assertion it made um, towards the end which said that Allardyce had been allowed to brief on breaking the rules. And the committee had found that actually Allardyce had set out a way to work around rules on third-party ownership. But what he had said would not have amounted to breaking mm. rules on third-party ownership. That's a very important distinction. That yeah. was an important distinction. Um, so this was... The news, The committee found that this was a failure to take care and a correction was required. Um, the set the the third inaccuracy, so that uh, that appeared in the comment piece. this piece was written by Damien Collins, MP, who at that time was the acting chair of the Select Committee for Culture, Media and Sport. Um and his piece was published a few days after the the initial story. Mm. because this was obviously kind of a series of it's, stories that were yeah. running over. kind of and it was big news at the time. Mm. so there was lots of lots of coverage. I mean, I think actually the newspaper published around 100 articles Mm. on this subject over a period of time. Um, So in this article, Damien Collins was expressing his view that the newspaper's investigation, not just in relation to Allardyce, but across football generally, had exposed the fact that money and people's desire for it and their greed was ruining football and that stricter regulation was required. Again, like the other one, an opinion he is entitled to express. Others may ha- take a completely different, different view. Um, um, but in this case, the writer inaccurately summarised what Sam Allardyce had been accused of doing. And, and so, what, what the writer said, he said that it is incredible that an England manager would enter negotiations with people he didn't know to provide insights and guidance over how they could get around regulations banning the third-party ownership of players. And this was not what Allardyce did, and it was not what the newspaper had set him up to do. Um, In fact, he'd met with reporters to discuss the potential speaking arrangement um, with them, and the subject of third-party ownership had come up during conversation Mm -hmm. just naturally. Mm -hmm. He wasn't... The whole idea wasn't for him to be paid to be giving advice on to get around rules of third party ownership mm-hmm. so that was an important distinction and the committee found that that um that required correcting
0: as oh, well interesting. So that was so, a
2: um it's a kind of a
0: very interesting example of where kind of um although they you're expressing an opinion the facts that you include to kind of back up your, exactly. what you're saying need to be They accurate. need to be right. Mm, absolutely. Exactly. Interesting. Um, so let's also look at Versi versus The Spectator. Um, so this is an article um, which is headlined, except this is the new normal, never. It's a common piece comment piece and um, it's describing the author the author's view this is I think sort of quite a controversial view in many ways um, nonetheless a view that uh, some people in this country do hold um, that we should not keep calm and carry on in response to terrorist acts um, so to support their this argument um, the author used some stats um, say so the article goes on to say that there are an estimated 32,000 Muslims Eager to commit the next terror atrocity, um, and another 100,000 prepared to give them moral support. Um, so, I think we can all understand why this is um, quite a controversial article. Um, it's definitely an example of a comment piece which includes kind of factual claims. So, John, let's have a, a talk about this one.
1: Yeah, so as you said, the key argument here was we shouldn't keep calm and carry on in the face of terrorist attacks. It's actually a big threat. That was, that was the, the position of the mm. So
0: we should, I think, make clear that this mm. this article is coming kind of off the back of a number of kind of terrorist attacks yeah. in the yeah. UK. Yeah. Kind of fear is heightened at yeah. this point.
1: Mm. And the author's position is actually, you know, we shouldn't just do what we were doing. There's a big threat from Islamist extremism. Um, and, you know, we should actually change what we're doing. You know, um, as you said, that's controversial for you. Um, but, you know... As we've said previously, our position is that diversity of views is something we would aim to promote, something which you know, we would want to safeguard in the media. Um, but as you said, this was an interesting example of a comment piece which actually included factual claims. Um, that one in particular about the 32,000 Muslims and the words were eager to commit the next terrorist atrocity. Clearly that's a factual claim. So what was it based on? So we started our investigation and it turned out that that was based on... Um, a comment by Gilles de Kerkhover, who is the EU's counter-terrorism commissioner. And he'd said previously that the UK had identified twenty to 25,000 radical jihadis. Um, and out of those, 3,000 were concerned for ME5, and 500 were under constant supervision.
0: I mean, John, I know that my maths is historically not great, but um, that does not sound like 32,000 so to me. It didn't
1: add up to 32,000, So, and that figure was clearly in the public domain. So they hadn't taken sufficient care over that claim. So that was a breach of the code, of clause one, accuracy of the code,
0: first of all. I mean, they they kind of definitely overstated the threat. And also, um, at a time of kind of heightened tensions as well, like that kind of overstatement is kind of very significant. Yeah, and
1: sometimes sometimes. a a simple numerical error won't be significant. Mm. But as you say, when this is something to do with a specific group, which is named, and um, where they've overstated the threat that that group poses, we consider that that was a significant inaccuracy, and it had to be corrected, and mm-hmm. it was, um, so ultimately the Spectator published quite a big correction, which was in the columnist's own column in his own words, which is quite an unusual step, and it, we thought sufficient to, to address that. Mm-hmm. Now, so that, that factual claim we found to be in breach of the code. The other factual claim was that uh, the columnist had said that there was 100,000 Muslims prepared to give those terrorists moral support. Now, in support of that claim, the publication was able to give us a range of polling data um, which showed small percentages of Muslims who had expressed sympathy for terrorists or, or other, 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 you know, other small percentages and questions of that nature. And then they extrapolated those small percentages to the whole Muslim population of Great Britain, giving that figure of 100,000 or, or sometimes higher than that. Um, and in the context of a common piece, we consider that that was a sufficient degree of care to take over that claim. Um, so we didn't uphold that part of the complaint. Now, had that claim been made in a news piece, we might have made a slightly different calculation there as to whether that was enough care. Um, you know, had that been a report of specific poll findings, which had then been extrapolated to the whole population, we might have made a different finding. But in a comment piece where um, you know, that had been a fairly general claim, we, we thought there was sufficient care taken over that, and we didn't uphold the, that part of the complaint. So really the lesson on, on this complaint was, if you include a specific fact in a comment piece, that fact needs to be correct. So if you see a comment piece with a fact you disagree with in it, then that's certainly something
0: which we can take complaint about and perhaps take forward. Mm-hmm. Um, say, um, I wanted to just include um, a complaint that we've received that kind of hasn't, gone forward to a ruling because as you say um sometimes we can't take complaints forward about opinion pieces for various reasons including that they kind of don't raise any possible breach of the code Um, sometimes they are made um about by a kind of third party person that is not um included or has knowledge of the complaint so uh, we do actually have quite an interesting blog on our website about all of the reasons why we can't take board complaints. If anybody is more interested in that, um, but this is Rod Little. It's an article which we got a lot of complaints about. Um, it's it's actually a very small piece um, in which Rod Little said that the uh, the Welsh people were meaning that a motorway bridge. And this is is his words, not mine. I would just like to clarify. So the Welsh were that a motorway Bridge, linking their rain-sodden valleys with the First World, is to be renamed the Prince of Wales Bridge. He went on to say that they would prefer it to be called something indecipherable with no real vowels, and that so long as it allows people to get out of the place pronte, should we worry about what it's called? Um i visited Wales many times and I find it to be a delightful place. Um, nonetheless, John, uh, tell us a little bit more about this one.
1: So yeah, there was a real variety of complaints about this and we did, as you say, get a lot of them. I, I think it even get, ended up getting mentioned in Parliament, in fact, in relation to um, discrimination on the basis of language. Um, a lot of people obviously found it offensive, so they didn't think that people should be able to say things like that about Welsh people in the media. That was, that was their, their basic view. But a big part of our role, as we've said already, is to say to people, okay, you might be offended by this, but that's actually not a good enough reason to prevent someone else from saying something. Um, and actually, the right to offend really is enshrined in the code as as, as part of you know, the freedom of expression. Um, so really, what we're looking for is something more than that. Um, now, other people said the article was discriminatory against Welsh people, so we've got clause 12 of the code, discrimination, which does protect people from discrimination, but Um, While we understood, obviously, this was upsetting to people, particularly people from Wales, under the Code, we only take complaints about discrimination against individuals, not groups. Now, this article was about Welsh people in general, or in fact, about Wales in general, really. It wasn't about a specific Welsh person being discriminated against on the basis of being Welsh. Um, There was certainly no suggestion of that, even, in the article. Um, So the reason, partly, why... That clause applies to, indiv- uh, to individuals and not groups, is because, as we said, it, that need to protect the freedom to criticise groups of people. Now, you might think in this article the criticism was invalid or you know even just silly, but the code protects the the ability of columnists to criticise groups of people for any reason. But now, other people made accuracy complaints about this article. For instance, they said that in fact, well, Wales's valleys are not rain sodden, as Little has said. Or, indeed, that Welsh actually has more vowels than I mean, than I can
0: attest, having once worked on Welsh translations, that the Welsh language does have plenty of vowels. <laughs> um.
1: Now, obviously, as we say, that's wrong. So, in some instances, those might be inaccuracies that we'd be concerned about. So, if there was an article which was a description of Wales's weather or of the Welsh language, you know, in a linguistic way, um, then certainly we'd be concerned about that. In this instance, though, so, this was an article which was clearly an opinion piece where these claims were clearly presented as hyperbole. They were Rod Little's view and they were clearly presented as being Rod Little's view.
0: I mean, also, we know that um, Rod little himself is, a, you know, a, a controversial columnist. Mm-hmm. Like, he, he is a columnist that likes to um, provoke a kind of strong reactions. Yeah, in he's trying to be funny. Yeah, I mean... You know, some people might have, I don't know, raised a little laugh at this column. Like, yeah. I think we uh, we all know that the Welsh language can sometimes be challenging if you are not a native speaker of that language, for sure. So say, um, you know, maybe there was kind of humour intended here. Yeah. But not for everybody, obviously. No.
1: Well, <laughs> so people were offended, but for us, those you know, those statements about the the weather and the language, um, because they were presented in the way they were, as humour, as, you know, hyperbole, for us, those didn't raise a possible breach of the code in this article. Um, So I think the key point here is that, you know, an article might be offensive to you, it might be annoying, it might even be something which you think is inflammatory or, or dangerous even, but that doesn't necessarily make it a breach of the code. So I would encourage complainants in particular to think, okay, how is this inaccurate? How does it breach the code? Um... And that's, that's the best way to... I mean, sure. that's
0: not to say, of course, you, you know, don't complain to us. We, You know, we look at every single complaint we receive, we take them all very seriously, but, you know, there, there's a process that we have to follow yeah. um, under our regulations when we do take forward these complaints. So it's interesting to have looked at these rulings and to see um, kind of how and why some complaints go forward and why others don't and i'd be interested to hear what our our listeners think about this because it's all about opinion pieces i'm sure everybody has very different opinions about you know what we should be taking forward and what we shouldn't um but i'd like to thank john and holly for joining us today to talk about all these rulings um so all of the info as i've mentioned is available on our website which is ipso.co.uk um hope you enjoyed the podcast let us know what you think we're at ipso news on twitter and facebook and we will be back again soon